Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. We're going to be talking about the kingdom of God, instructions about the kingdom, and that sort of thing. If you would stand as we read the word of God together. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world. Woe, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountain to seek the one who is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of God. God. Our Father, we thank you for this time to study the word of God. It is a precious thing that we have in our hands here today, Lord. Open our eyes to the truth of your word. We need you, Father, more than we need anything in this world. We need a, a touch from you. We need to sense your presence, and we need you to speak to our hearts truth. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know by now, as we've gone through this many, many times, that the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. Last time we talked about the Christian's responsibility to government, and it really boils down to this. We are to be good citizens. We are to obey the government mandates unless they are counter to God. And if they are counter to God, then we must not, cannot, obey those mandates. We must stand and say, no, we cannot do that. Remember, all world governments have been established, uh, you know, by, God has actually established them for law and order and that sort of thing, but world governments are really under the control of a different kingdom. I hope you realize that. Uh, there's a significant thing that happens when people follow Christ. People prosper People benefit, people live better in cultures where Christianity has predominated. Now Christianity has been pushed out almost all over the world. Uh, I did a study, actually, I looked at a study on atheism in the world. I was going to have an overhead for it, but it was so, uh, the numbers were so high that I, I didn't want to put them up because I couldn't validate the numbers. But I do know that 91%, at least in several studies, showed that the highest nation with atheists was China at 91%. And second to that was Sweden. And then you get into the other Scandinavian countries in Europe and that sort of thing, and it's 70%, 60% atheists in those countries who just do not believe in a God, period. We also notice that 
the people that mostly believe in God was on the continent of Africa, interestingly enough, where many missionaries have gone over and over the years, and they, they have stayed true to the faith. But so many people have abandoned the faith. And that, uh, that, that the area of the world that is most unchurched, as I've mentioned so many times, is the 1040 window. And that's this area here of giant number of atheists, Hindus, and Muslims. And in here is the area where most of the unchurched world is. And uh, let me just read you this. This is called the resistant belt by missionaries and includes the majority of Muslims, Hindus, and, and Buddhists. In that 1040 window are 5.27 billion people, and the vast majority of them don't know anything about Jesus, know nothing about Jesus. Now, what we see has happened in America. America was a pros is a prosperous nation still today, but we notice that our prosperity, our standard of living, I think has crescendoed. And it is coming down. And we've joined the ranks of the world. Well, the picture that was up there. The ranks of the world uh, of uh, the globalists and, and becoming like the world. And if we become like the world, then we get to live like the world in that 1040 window where there's poverty and there's oppression and that sort of thing. America, as you know, has kicked God out. And in Washington, D.C., now Maritza, you can put that one up there. There's actually an arch of Baal. There's been a welcoming of Baal, the false gods of the world, into our nation today. And Jonathan Kahn, in his book, The uh, Return of the Gods, has eloquently spoken on this. And I want to share with you a few of his words here today. This is a quote. He says this, The gods of old now dwell among us. The 1040 window gods. The gods that oppress the cultures. Promise them everything. That is coming and that is here in America today. They inhabit our institutions, walk the halls of our governments, cast votes in our legislatures, guide our corporations, gaze out from our skyscrapers, perform on our stages, and teach in our universities. They saturate our media, direct our news cycles, inspire our entertainers, and give voices to our songs. They incite movements and ideologies and convert others to their ends. They instruct their children and initiate them in their ways. They incite the multitudes. They drive otherwise rational people into irrationality, some into frenzies. Just look at the cities and just look at this last weekend with the riots in the cities in Atlanta, into frenzies as just they had done in ancient times. They demand our worship, our veneration, our submission, and our sacrifices. Folks, it is into this world that God has placed you for such a time as it's says in Esther, for such a time as this. And it is in this world that we learned last week that we are to live not by lies. We will not buy into the lies of the culture. We will not be silenced, and we will not be chameleons and, and adapt to the cultures and its ways in order to fit in. We will not do that. We will be salt and light, and we know that the truth dispels the lies. It is in this world that God has placed you for this time you to impact your world. And I want you to think about this. I believe that we're in the final phase of human government. Now, remember the government started, and, and Daniel had a, had a vision that he shared with Nebuchadnezzar, and that vision had the, the statue here. Now, notice how wonderful and beautiful the statue is. These are the world kingdoms, Babylon, 
Persia, Greece, Rome with its east and west division, and then the ten-nation confederation that is right on the horizon, and then this stone was carved out of the mountain that crushed the statue, and it tumbled down. That's the next slide here. This tumbling down is Jesus' kingdom coming. Now, the significant thing about this is each kingdom has attributes of the preceding kingdom all the way down to the feet. So it's looked at as a whole, and Christ comes and destroys this statue and all the world kingdoms and establishes his kingdom. Now, that is what we are waiting for. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 says this, speaking of this event. In the, in, the, in the days of these kings, plural kings, Babylon, Persia, Greece, they looked at it as a singularity as the kingdoms of this world that are, are opposed to the God of heaven. So in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. He will come back and he will establish his millennial kingdom in which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Nobody else will rise up after Jesus' kingdom is established. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms that it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone, which I believe is Jesus, was cut out of the mountain. Remember, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected in Matthew chapter 21. Without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. And then Daniel says this. The great God has made known to the king and to us today what will come to pass after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The rock will come and destroy Antichrist's kingdom, and Jesus will establish his millennial kingdom. We are living in a special time of history, folks. Now, it might be discouraging to you as you see our nation change right before our eyes, but it's still a special time that we see God fulfilling end-time prophecy like never before. You are the church, and I believe that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is ready on the precipice of coming to fetch his church, to take his church out of this quagmire mess. So what are we to do? We are to watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. Don't be lulled into complacency. Don't be chameleonized. Don't be indoctrinated. Don't act like the world that you're living in. We are the antithesis of the world, and we are to be different than the world that we're living in and represent our Lord. Now, Jesus is going to give instructions this week about the kingdom. He starts in verses 1 through 5, who's the greatest in the kingdom. Now, this is an argument. The disciples are arguing among themselves. Now, Jesus has taught them for two and a half to three years. Okay, two and a half to three years, he's been with these guys, and they just haven't got it. I mean, remember the setting. Jesus had told them he's going to die on the cross. He told them to obey the government. And right after that, they start arguing about who is the greatest. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? It's all about them. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? Who's number one, Jesus, in the kingdom? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, surely I say to you, unless you are converted, the key word, and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, what is the kingdom? Everybody in here knows. But for you who are listening, you may not know. 
It's the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ where he will reign and there will be peace and prosperity and a perfect king and a perfect environment on the earth. And again, it was asked in the setting of Jesus just told them he's going to die. And they go into an argument about who's the greatest. You talk about insensitive. What do those guys need? They needed the Holy Spirit. Just like we need the Holy Spirit today to see clearly what's going on around us. They needed the Holy Spirit then. Everything changed at Pentecost with these guys. They weren't arguing about who's the greatest then. Jesus enters, Jesus, well, let me just say this, because I was going to skip a slide. But anyway, who will be the number one disciple is their, is their key. Jealousy is rampant in the group, and there's something that I've turned power lust. The lust for power in the fleshly human is insatiable. Power and control, and that's what they were wanted. It was going into the group. Now, I have a picture here of the disciples, just kind of a picture of everybody arguing and deciding, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. It's a human trait, folks. I'm the better, I'm greater, I'm, I'm the one that you should follow. Power, position, prestige, and reward. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. Now, when you hear that, that is the flesh screaming out for attention. I want my way. Jesus, the greatest teacher of all, and these guys, are they two and a half to three years, and they're still fighting for a position, still fighting for, for position. Now, Jesus, Jesus enters the conversation. He says this, and he doesn't scold them. Now, if you were Jesus, you'd probably look at them right between the peepers and say, are you kidding? Are you kidding? I mean, you're arguing about, I just told you I'm going to die, and this is your focus? To be great, one must first be converted. This is all about genuine salvation. This is all about believing and receiving the gift of salvation. Unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of God. That converted is sterpho. It means to turn, to change course. It's very close to repentance. Repentance is to change your mind, which leads to a sterpho, a change course in your life, a change course. Unless one is converted, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to emphasize something that I've emphasized over and over and over, so please hear, please never forget this. A changed life is a hallmark of true salvation. It is very hard for someone to say, I have received Jesus as my Savior, and I just go about my life any way that I want. That is a dangerous position. I can't tell if that person's saved or not, but I can tell you, you are in danger, danger, danger of not being genuine. So to be great in the kingdom, one must first be converted to enter the kingdom, to be saved, and one must be humble, come in a childlike attitude, not as prosperous, not as proud, not as arrogant like them fighting for position, but to be humble. That's why he told them, humble. You guys are fighting for position humility is what Jesus is looking for. Now, Robert Dean in his work has a as an overhead as humility being a hallmark of salvation. And he says this, and I love this guy, Tapiano, is a, it, it literally means low-lying, brought low, came to mean someone of low degree, low estate, weak, insignificant, poor. From that it was used metaphorically, someone of lowliness of mind and humble. Lowliness of mind and humble. Now, look at Jesus wants us to be humble 
and He does nothing unless He models it for us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, God humbled Himself to become a mere man. He humbled Tepineo Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus demonstrated humility by being in total submission to his Father. We demonstrate humility by being in total submission to our Lord Jesus Christ and to our Heavenly Father. That is what real humility is. Jesus set aside his heavenly privileges in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. You know this. This is the kenosis, the self-emptying of the use of his divine privileges. He set them aside while he was on this earth as a human being, a bondservant of, of, of his father. So he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. God became a man. That's the ultimate in humbleness. God became one of us. So to be great in the kingdom, you have to be born again, converted, and you have to come humbly. God is not looking for those who are proud and arrogant and all full of themselves. It starts with humility. And I bet you in your life that you'll realize you reach a point, you reach the point where it's not about me. God save me. God save me. It is not about arrogance. Now, for some uh, clarification here, humility is not viewing yourself as useless, of no value, or purposeless. Humility is viewing you as God views you. Remember, you're a child of God. You are sons and daughters of God. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus even calls us his friends if we are following him, obeying him. We're under submission to God. C.S. Lewis helps us with this. And there'll be a slide that comes up. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Isn't that something? What is the focus of humanity today? Self, self, I, what's in it for me? That sort of thing. Now, watch what Jesus said. He's going to give a warning about do not offend these baby immature Christians. These baby Christians, don't offend them or you'll be in trouble. Verse 6 and 7. Whoever, whoever, pass, every and all, whoever causes one of these little, micro, small, small ones who, who believe in me. See, this is Christians. These are born-again, newborn babes. To sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a terror. Woe to the world. Woe to the cosmos, the summation of humanity because of offenses, for offenses must come. They will come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. That word offense, he's, he's emphasizing this, is scandalon, and it means to set a snare or a trap, to throw off course, to put a stumbling block in front of someone, to lead someone astray. Jesus is saying very specifically, don't you lead these little ones astray, these new believers astray. That is a warning. That is a warning to every pastor who does not preach the Word of God, who has embraced the things of this world. Every Sunday school teacher, home group leader, every teacher, every university professor, it's a warning to them. Every friend, 
Everybody you come in contact with that says, hey, you walk this way. Walk away from your God. You don't need him. For those people, he said it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around your neck and you drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, look, at what we are seeing today are more and more believers compromising their faith, blending with the world, chameleonizing with the world, and embracing the things of the world, looking like, sounding like, smelling like the world to fit into the world. You see that all over. Major denominations have caved in this area. Heretofore, faithful followers have now caved major denominations. The warning is strong. Warning is strong. If you deny God, if you deny what he says in his word, what sin is, we cannot compromise on this. We can't change the definition of marriage. We can't kill babies with impunity. We cannot do the things that we're doing as a nation and invite the gods of this world in and think you're going to be blessed by God. You cannot do that. Don't miss the terror imagery. Drowned in the depths of the sea. This is terrifying. Jesus is saying very loud and clear to use the vernacular of today, don't mess with my kids. That's what he's saying. Don't mess with my kids. In verse 8 and 9, it's a warning to everyone who chooses contrary to God to go in their own direction. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, this is hyperbole. No one needs to be walking around with their arm cut off or their eye poked out or that sort of thing. It's hyperbole. He's giving an emphasis here. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Everlasting. Not temporary, not consuming. Hell is an everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into fire. So cut off your hand, the things that you do. Pluck out your eye, the things that you're attracted to. Better to be without those than go to hell forever. That's what he's saying in the summation. So whatever is causing you to sin, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, and everybody has a thing that's causing you to sin and that entraps you, get rid of it ASAP. Do not dawdle. Get rid of it. Jesus is serious here. Any stumbling block that you have in your life, he says, cut it out. Now, when you were a kid or when you were a mom and dad, you used those words with your kid. Cut it out. That's scripture. Cut it out of your life. Cut that sin out of your life. Jesus warned frequently about hell. And, and, and again, when he said hell, he said it was everlasting hell. That is very important. That word is ionios, ionios. And that means eternal, everlasting punishment. It is not temporary. You know, it's, it's incredible how humans rationalize. There is no hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Every obituary you see, they are in heaven, if they believe in heaven. I mean, if they believe in anything, they, they, they're all in heaven. They haven't lived for God, know nothing about them. You know, they're having their funeral at the moose. Lodge and extolling the person. Hell is real, folks, as well as heaven is, is everlasting. Same word is used there, Ionios, eternal life. Same, same word. Hell, Gehenna, 
is a smoldering garbage dump. Jesus, look at this illustration that Jesus uses. Outside of Jerusalem, and it's a smelly, putrid thing in this picture. It's the valley, it was in the Valley of Hinnom, and interestingly, that is where the Jewish people sacrificed children. It was a smelly, in the eyes of God, was a putrid garbage dump. Not pleasant for sure. You know, uh, people underestimate what Jesus is saying here. Jesus talked more about hell and separation from God and warning about that than he did heaven. Now, you guys know that because I've mentioned it many times. Now, in verse 10 and 11, he talks about what may be guardian angels. I put question mark. Let's see what this means. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. And again, it's talking about, uh, it's talking about baby Christians, these little ones. For I say to you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then he makes this statement. Let this be indelibly imprinted into your mind. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He came to save lost humanity. The Spirit of God is working in the hearts of people. The Father is drawing. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Every human being has in their being a drawing towards God. But folks, you've got to respond. And our culture now is so dead in their trespasses and sins that most people stiff-arm God and say, I don't want you, and embrace the gods of this world that they've allowed to come into their lives. Little ones, little ones, not referring again to, to little children, baby children. You must have an attitude of a child, but these are little baby born-again Christians baby Christians. Now, the question is this. Do all believers have a guardian angel? Some people say yes. Some people say no. Some people use this scripture, Matthew 18.10, as a proof text. Others will use Acts 12.13 through 15. Now, Acts 12.13 through 15, I'll give you a summation of this. Peter's in prison. An angel comes into the prison, lets him out of the prison. He goes to the house where they're having a prayer meeting about Peter. They're praying, oh, Lord, let Peter go. Oh, get, set him free. He knocks on the door. Peter knocks on the door. And Rhoda, a young girl, comes to the door, answers the door, and she's blown away. She goes away and tells the group that's praying in another room, Peter's here. And all those staunch, staunch Christians praying for Peter go, it can't be. Can't be. God can't do that. No way, can't happen. And they, they, they say it's his angel. It's his angel. Folks, what we do know, I don't know about guardian angels and that sort of thing. I have a suspicion. I'll share that in just a second. But uh, what we know for sure is the nation of Israel has an archangel, Michael, that is responsible for the protection of the nation of Israel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Israel is the only nation with this type of protection. Now, I want to show you, again, you've seen this slide before. It's so impressive. I just wanted to show it to you one more time. All of these nations that surround Israel. And this little red spot is the nation of Israel. The world conspires to eliminate this spot. This little spot. Look at all the land. The Palestinians could be easily incorporated into any other place. This is a land that God, out of the whole world, you don't even see the whole world here, has selected for 
his people. All the false gods in the world can have this, but you can't have this. Interestingly, the, the number of atheists in Israel is at about 63%. Isn't that, doesn't that just blow your mind? The place that God has set up, they are the wife of Jehovah, and 63% fail to believe in God at all. 63%. Israel, again, is called the wife of Jehovah. Isaiah 54, 6 says this, For the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says our God. Listen, you know this, I know this, but it needs to be stated. Satan hates what God loves. And Israel is the wife of Jehovah. You are the bride of Christ. Satan hates the Jews. And after his hatred for them, right up there at the top is his hatred for the bride of Christ. And he wants to kill the Jews, and he's tried all through history to do it. He's been unsuccessful to eliminate them, but he's come close. They've suffered immensely. And his goal is to eliminate the church to cause all kinds of hassle for the church. But you know we have Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, Upon this rock, upon himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against. Look, when you think you're in the minority of minorities, which we are in this world, the gates of hell will not, will not conquer the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will sustain until Jesus comes back for us. Thinking about Israel, remember Satan wants to destroy the Jews. And remember, sin makes you crazy. Sin makes you think irrationally. And Satan thinks that if he kills all the Jews, he'll prevent Messiah from coming back. Because remember the two things that they have to do, recognize their national sin of rejecting Messiah and plead for him to return. If he can just kill every last one of them, they can't do that and Satan thinks he will win. What has he missed? He has missed the predetermined will of God will not be thwarted, period. God's will will be done. He will preserve his people. Now, how will he preserve them? They will have to go through the most horrific time in the history of the world. They will go through the seven-year tribulation period. Remember, the tribulation period is really designed for the nation of Israel. The church, I believe, is extracted. The focal point, no matter where you are in your development of how you think these rapture events occur, the, the tribulation period unequivocally is designed to get the nation of Israel to open their eyes to who Messiah is. And all the suffering that they experience, all the seal judgment, trumpet judgments, bold judgments, the wrath of God on the earth dwellers is to get the attention of the Jewish people to open their eyes. All the wrath of Antichrist, which is poured out, really, in the mid-tribulation on, when, he, when Satan indwells the Antichrist, and then he tries to kill every Jew possible, every Jew possible, once he's kicked out of heaven in Revelation 12. He tries to kill every Jew possible. He will not be able to do that because they'll make their escape into Petra. They will finally believe at the very end of the tribulation period. That's how I don't want to say stubborn, but that's a stubborn people. No other nation is mentioned of having their own angel assigned to it except Israel. 
Daniel chapter 10 talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, and we get a little peek behind the scenes of the demonic realms and principalities and kingdoms and that sort of thing that are trying to control governments and people groups. But we don't see specifically a lot past that. Now, what we do know, God does use angels to minister to us today. You must understand this. Angels are real. He uses them, and he uses us in his plan. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need us. But God is community, family. And he, de he desires for us to be part of his plan and his process. Another interesting thought is this. I suspect that we do have an angel that from time to time invades our lives, sent to help us, that we do not even recognize. We're unaware of these inter interventions of these celestial beings. Now, I think that happens way more than we can even conceive of. Another interesting thought. It seems that we have an angel escort into heaven the moment you die. You know it's Luke 16, 22. Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And I think the instant we die, we are transported in the presence of God, and we have an angel escort into the presence of God. Never alone. Never alone. The last breath. And I, folks, I do not believe this is fantasy. I don't believe this is make-believe. I believe this is true. Jesus said so. I believe Jesus. Just that simple. Verse 12 through 14, Jesus seeks after strays. Those sheep that stray off. 12 through 14, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? Take a hard stop right there. How many times have you strayed? Aren't you glad that Jesus pursued you? I mean, it is over. I mean, we, we, we are prone to wander, folks. We stray to the right, we stray to the left, we can't walk the straight. We, it is very common for humans, very common. And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, now when Jesus finds the sheep that strays off, he doesn't scold them, he doesn't chasten them. He is happy that they've come back. He is rejoicing that they have come back. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for this. I cannot tell you. Surely said he rejoices more over the one sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, little baby believers, should perish, should perish. Now, straying is this, led into error. Baby Christians all over are being led into error. Why are they being led into error? Shepherds aren't watching over the sheep. See, the shepherd's responsibility is to teach, to guide, to guard, to protect from the wolves, to lead in a right direction. You know you are genuine, folks, when you go off course and you sense the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, God pursuing you. Jesus is the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, and the great shepherd. And he will pursue those who are genuinely his. Genuinely his. And again, it's a picture of wandering sheep being drawn away. Drawn away and enticed by the things of this world. Now, 
How does God help true believers change course when they wander? Again, we all wander. How does He help us? Well, you know the answer to this. He disciplines us. He disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loves, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, He chastens, and scourges every son whom He receives. And that scourging can be quite painful. Now, I think the character of God is this. When we stray, He will use the least amount of leverage on us that He has to to bring us back. But if you resist, it will be painful for you because He will redirect your life one way or another. If you really are truly His, you will change course. It will, could be very painful. Listen to this. Real love cares. Real love gets involved with that wanderer. Real love does not ignore someone and just pat them on the back and say, it's okay, live your life the way that you want to. Real love does not do that. Does not do that. He disciplines us. Now, discipline is not cheery. Were you looking forward to your licking? Oh, when your dad comes home, you're really going to get it. Yeah, and all, you know, you, you know no. It is not a good thing to think about, but it, it really is a demonstration of love. What does not seem good for you is good for you. The wise person, when God is pursuing you, wandering off, the little sheep, dumb as, dumb as a duck, just wandering off, you know, led astray, sniffing the world. Oh, I love that. Smells good over here. Let's go, you know. He's pursuing you. Listen to this. A, 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 real per, a wise person will humble themselves in the sight of the Lord and make no excuses. Don't make up reasons. Don't, don't rationalize your decisions. Don't go into everybody else's doing it. Why can't I do it and all that? They can go their way. We're going Jesus' way. It's just that simple. Can then confess your sins in the sight of the Lord. Learn from the discipline. Learn from it. It is painful to wander from the shepherd. It just is. Learn the shepherd's rod and staff are a comfort. David said, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They bring me back in the line. They protect me from the wolves. They're a comfort to me. And stay close to the shepherd, folks. That is where you are the safest. The shepherd loves the sheep. Now, hear this statement. The shepherd loves the sheep. If you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves you even when you wander off even when you aren't going along with the program. He loves you implicitly. He loves you implicitly. I love this statement here. Whether you stay or whether you stray, the shepherd loves you and will pursue you. Don't you love that? I mean, the shepherd loves me. That's why he's pursuing me. The shepherd's love is not conditional on my obedience. It's not conditional. He loves me implicitly because I believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. The wolves want you to wander. I hope you realize that. Picture the world as being full of wolves, full of wolves. They want you to wander, and you must stay close to the shepherd to be protected. Now the wolves are all over the place, and there's more wolves in America now than ever before. So I have a picture here. A shepherd, the wolves, a staff, and watch the sheep. The sheep has no idea of those wolves. He's not even looking that way. 
He's totally content being by the shepherd. He has total trust in the shepherd. The shepherd, does he look like he's sweating the wolves? No sweat. No sweat. He's got his staff. I'll beat the snot out of you come near this sheep. That's what he's talking. Wolves want the sheep. And, and again, the wolves are all over. Come here, little sheep. Come here. Bah, come here, little sheep. Oh, it's so wonderful over here. Don't be so rigid, little sheep. Have a little fun, little sheep. Look at what you're missing, little sheep. Come and taste. Come touch. Come and enjoy, little sheep. Oh, come, come. Look, at Satan will tell you it's okay. Your flesh will tell you it's okay. You deserve it. The world system will affirm your sinful decision. We have a triunity of evil here. You know what it is. We've seen it many times. The next slide, you know, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is, this is our triunity. They're all hip, hip, hooray. Go and smell that new pasture. Go for it. It's wonderful out there. And when you do, you will suffer, and you will hurt, and you'll experience pain. And that pain, as you know, will have a ripple effect. This will affect not only your life. This is you right here. Why are you so worried about me? It does, I'm not hurting you. Oh, really? Sin has a ripple effect. Conversely, conversely, salt and light, speaking the truth in a culture of lies, has a ripple effect. You never know who you are affecting when you are speaking the truth. And it goes out and it goes out. Speak the truth. It works both ways. It works both ways. Again, Satan tells you it's okay. You always experience some sort of pain and discomfort if you choose to walk away from God. It's just that simple. It's 100%. It's an A plus on your test. If you get, You're going to suffer. You walk away from God. And then listen to this. There's always a danger in sheep thinking that they are super sheep. The super sheep, they can live close to sin, dabble in sin, not be touched by sin, not suffer the consequences. I'm not like everybody else. I'm a super sheep. I'm a super sheep. Well, we have a picture of you coming up here. The super sheep. Yes. Yes. I am Hercules. It won't hurt me. Yeah. Look at this guy years later, emaciated by himself, lonely, despondent. Why did I take of that fruit? That's what happens. Super sheep. What God says is true, folks, is true. Be careful. Do not be led astray by those people that say, come, come experience, come touch, come smell. You deserve it. You deserve some fun. Now, there's a warning here also. If the shepherd is not pursuing you, and you're perfectly content in your sin, if wandering is your way of life and you're, and you're not being disciplined, then Hebrews 12.8 tells you who you are. If you are without chastening, without discipline, of which all have been partakers, all genuine have been partakers, everyone in here has been a partaker of discipline at some point. Then if you have not partakers, if you have not been, been disciplined, 
then you are illegitimate and not sons. You are not born again. That is a scary thought. Some closing thoughts. Oh, my goodness. Closing thoughts. Are you ready to rumble? Yeah. I believe the, clo- the kingdom is closer than you think. It's closer than you think. And remember, humility is not thinking less about yourself, not, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less about yourself. Those who are truly humble, life is not about me, it is about God. Living humbly will bring us closer to God, will bring us something that this world does not have. Real joy, real contentment, real purpose, real fulfillment in life. So many people feel that their world is just empty and devoid of purpose and meaning of value. Jesus is the cure for that. And you saw this picture before, what joy is. Jesus, others, and you. That's the sequence to joy. It's not the world's way. The world wants you to be number one. Always number one. It's all about you. Oh, no. Jesus, others, and you. Those great in the kingdom will be a servant. The first will be last. The last shall be first. Jesus said, I did not come to serve, but be served, but be, not to be served, but to serve and give myself a ransom for many. John the Baptist made a statement, he must increase and I must decrease. The truth is this, he must increase in my life and I must, must decrease. My will, my way, that's kingdom thinking. Are you looking forward to the kingdom? All of God's creatures dwelling in harmony. I love this picture, the lion and the lamb. Look at the contentment in the lion's face. Look at the lamb totally at peace. Folks, this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. The lion and the lamb. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we're talking about. This is all true. The kingdom will come. This will happen. We will reign with Jesus Christ in his kingdom one day. My prayer for all of us is this. Live for the king today and look forward to the king coming soon. I want to mention this. What I've told you is true. What I told you have told you is real. The kingdom will happen. Life is dangerously unpredictable. Life is but a vapor here for a moment and gone. You know that. We know that. You never know when Jesus will come for you in the rapture or come for you individually in natural death. But he is coming. The king is coming. The, king, the kingdom will come. Thy will be done. And again, the king is coming. He really is. And I want to close with this picture indelibly imprinted on your mind. Behold, he is coming the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says in Revelation, the root of David. The first and the last, the beginning of the end. Jesus Christ is coming. King of kings, Lord of lords, the great I am is coming. And the question for every one of us, are you ready? King, are you ready? Are you ready to give the king his rightful place in your heart? And I love that song that Evan sang at Christmas Eve or Christmas Day service. Is there room in your heart for Jesus? Is there really room in your heart for him to rule and reign over your life?
Are you still in a fist fight with them? Are you still stiff-arming them? Are you still trying to have your will and your way and kind of balance this thing, trying to tippy-toe between the world and Christ? You can't do it. It's either all in and experience peace and joy and purpose and value, or it's half in and misery. Miserable, in between. That's the choice. Behold, he is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth. Holy Spirit, I ask that you do your work in each one of our hearts today. May we be all in, not tippy-toe in. May we be men and women of God, men and women of courage, men and women of strength, men and women of honor and character and integrity. May we represent you as you really are in the culture. And may people, when they see us, say, oh, that's a Christ follower. That's a different person. May we not chameleonize, but may we walk this walk with fervor and passion for our King. In Jesus' name, amen.